0: If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy
1: Hour. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heretic Happy hour podcast. We have such an amazing episode for you, uh, today. I got to tell you, this is honestly, we're doing this, um, this decolonizing series. And, uh, the one, this one is like so far one of my favorites. It's so great. But before we jump into that, I probably should introduce myself and uh, have our uh, co-hosts introduce themselves as well. My name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the seven part Jesus Un series of books available on Amazon, on Kindle and print and in audio. And, um, those books deal with various different aspects of the deconstruction reconstruction experience. And I'm also the founder of the square one course and community for people that are going through deconstruction and want to go through reconstruction, um, with a group of people who kind of know what it feels like and have been there, done that. And so, uh, yeah, our next one starts February 14th. Uh, go and check that out and uh, be glad to invite you into that at, B- at BK2SQ1.com. And I am joined by my amazing co-hosts, the, the one, the only, uh, each one of them individually Derek, Matt, and Katie, say hello.
0: Hi, everyone. My name is Katie Valentine. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian uh, Facebook community. I do other things. Let's see. I host another podcast, Magical, Mystical Journeys. If any of you are really into the woo-woo and want to come along for that ride, I'm really excited about our Decolonizing series. We're decolonizing like a mother.
2: you are in for a treat. (laughs) I am Derek Day, (laughs) the the host of the Forward Podcast and the co-host of this podcast and the author of Deconstructing Religion, and I'm going to write some books for choir that are going to absolutely kick ass, and I'm just happy to be here. This Deconstructing series- Decolonizing. Or Decolonizing. Decolonizing series. Okay, blame it on the alcohol. No, I do. God damn it.
3: <laughs> yes, <and> I am <laughs> I am Matthew DiStefano, also looking forward to this decolonizing <laughs> series. Whatever you want to call yeah. it, I'm, I'm all in. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful series. I am uh, the author of many books. I also blog at Patheos. And um, I don't want to really talk about that right now because I want to introduce our guest host, Someone, Katie, I got to thank you for introducing us to, to this, this host. You are I didn't welcome. Know who, yeah, I didn't know who, who it was, but I am so looking forward to this conversation. It is none other than Jay Johnson. We are going to get weird or peculiar is is his word. Peculiar. Uh, we're we're going to talk about queer theology, sacred spirituality, and uh, I just love that word peculiar. He, he talks about, uh, we're going to talk about a peculiar gospel. We're going to find out what that entails, and it is bound to be a fantastic conversation. So let's get into that now. Hell
4: yeah. It's the heretic of the week. Hello, my name is Jay Johnson, and I am proud to be a heretic.
0: Hi,
4: Jay. (laughs)
0: Well, this is really, really fun for me and to welcome Jay as part of our Decolonizing series. I've known Jay for many, many years and uh, you're all in for a real treat. So Jay, welcome to the podcast. And we would love to just let our listeners get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us just a little bit about your background, your spiritual background, and how you how you kind of ended up where you are now.
4: Yes, I would be happy to do that. And um, the brief version of that story, and we can see where we want to go with it. Is um, I was uh, born. Uh, Here in Michigan, where I have returned to recently, but grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, um, outside of Chicago, evangelical Christian capital of the world, at least at the time, um, and was raised in the evangelical free church and in a very evangelical culture uh, there in the western suburbs of Chicago. And then I also went to Wheaton College, which is a private Christian school there in Wheaton where my dad was on the faculty. And that's also where I came out as a gay man, which was, well, I guess traumatic is one of the words I could use for that. Uh, Difficult, challenging, and also set me on a path toward some of the best things in my life, really, uh, around a depth of spiritual practice and of um, theological engagement and of social activism that actually would not probably have happened otherwise. So I the really brief sort of resume is then I, I went to seminary. I became an Episcopalian when I was at Wheaton. There's a fun story about that because I had a crush on my RA at Wheaton and he asked me to go to <laughs> church, but that's another story. Um, So I became an Episcopalian because I had a crush on my RA, which is really hilarious to me. (laughs) God works um, in
0: mysterious ways. I know,
4: right? And so I went to seminary a couple of years after college and then was ordained in the Diocese of Chicago and served as a full-time parish priest for three years there, and then decided that I had still lots of theological questions. So I went back to graduate school. Katie, you and I met there in Berkeley at the Graduate Theological Union, and I did a PhD in systematic and philosophical theology. And it was after that, when I was teaching, that I really dove headlong into queer theory, and found out ways of being Christian and thinking Christianly, and that were really life giving. So that's the that's the short version of that story. And now I'm back full time as a parish priest after doing lots of academic work and teaching, and um, I'm enjoying myself.
0: Hey, did you keep up with the RA? <laughs> Are you
4: uh, did anything uh, ever happen there? All, I know whose name was also Jay and no i never did although i did go to his wedding to a woman i think that was while i was still in college that's that's a fun story you know people use people are fond of saying When they, uh, Because there are lots of, I was something else before I was an Episcopalian, Episcopalians, there are lots of those. And lots of people will say, I became an Episcopalian because I didn't have to check my brain at the door, right? I could bring my thinking self in. Well, for me, it was because I didn't have to check my body at the door. So I could actually bring my full self uh, with me into church. So that was a a big part of that uh, move for me.
2: So, I'm going to start off with the question that is on everyone's mind here. <laughs> what is queer theology? And 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 I'm I'm you know, I'm really excited to hear this because I'm very how can I say it? I'm anti theology. But, <laughs> but when when someone comes up with something off the beaten path then I get really excited. I get I I get really dialed in. So I'm I'm I've got my fire built. I've got my glass of wine. Have at it, Jay. Tell us all about it.
4: <laughs> so let me give you, I'm really happy to talk about this. So I'll give you the brief sort of version, and then maybe we can figure out what might sound most interesting to pursue out of that brief version. So The way that I like to talk about this is slightly autobiographically. So when I came out as a gay man at Wheaton, um, I engaged in a process, uh, that many people in that kind of situation do, which is I call it the apologetic task because I was given the, I was given a choice. Either you can be gay or you can be a Christian, but you can't be both. And I don't know why, I'm just, I'll chalk it up to divine grace. I just refused to make the choice. I stubbornly said, no, uh, I'm not gonna make that choice. And so I embarked on a path to, and I, as I said, I call it the apologetic task, which is to try to figure out how you justify, how I justify being a gay person in Christian, uh, in the Christian church. And as so many people do, that usually involves, Katie knows this really well, Uh, sort of biblical self-defense, right? So you have, there's a series of people call them the clobber passages. You have to figure out how to address the so-called anti-gay passages in scripture and so on. So I did all that work in a way that made me feel like this feels comfortable. I'm at home. But here's the thing is for me anyway, that's, it's a defensive, apologetic, posture that I just described, which is important. And for many people, it's a matter of survival uh, to do that. But it's also not proactive and constructive and life-giving in a way that's really important for any religious tradition. And so later in my life, uh, especially when I was in Uh, The doctoral program, I started engaging in what I have called since then the constructive task in sexuality, gender, and Christianity. And I was using, in academic ease, I was using um, critical social theory to do that work, including, we finally get to the word, queer theorists and What I found absolutely, endlessly intriguing and fascinating about queer theory is the absolute refusal by queer theorists to define it. And what I found and continue to find really helpful in that regard is to take that into theological work and realize that what we're talking about when we're talking about the infinite mystery of the living God is actually beyond our definitions and beyond our categories, and that The very best that theology can do when it's really good is point us toward that reality, but never really capture it. And the reason that that's a queer insight is because what queer theorists insist upon is that the categories that we use for sexuality and gender, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, question, all that's, all those categories, at the end of the day, fail Mm -hmm. to capture the mystery of the human person, that I cannot be reduced to this little categorical box in the very same way that God cannot be reduced to our little doctrinal boxes. So let me just finish up this very quick intro to what queer has to do with theology by saying this, because (laughs) because it's actually kind of ridiculous, but I like it. Uh, if I were to give like a summary of a very brief, like what do, what do queer theorists do? What is queer theory? I would say this. Queer theory does what it is, is a relentless interrogation of unexamined assumptions, especially related to categorical classification schemes and their regulatory regimes, let me tell you, I worked a long time on <laughs> that synopsis of queer theory uh, back in the day at, in graduate school. The reason I like it so much is because I think the, some of the very best strands in Christian traditions and church history follow exactly that path of constantly interrogating our assumptions about God and ourselves and the world and also being super suspicious of our categories for God and also being really wary of all the regulatory regimes, the hierarchy, the, those who are policing behavior and policing doctrinal belief and so on. There's a profound liberation and freedom in approaching Christian theology from a queer perspective that does not Uh, limit itself to, say, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people, but I would say, and here I'll shut up and and we can have more conversation, but I would say, given the Jesus we read about in the Gospels, in the Christian Testament of the Bible, uh, if anyone wants to seriously follow that guy, they're going to be queer.
3: Wow. Wow. Oh, where's it? Hold on. I I have something for that. I I thought you'd do the
2: bum, bum, bum. Oh, I can do that. Hold on. Okay. There we go. Now, let me say this, right? As a liberal socialist black man, right? Critical race theory is something that's in the public vernacular. Now, you said something about uh, queer theory. And I'm going to piggyback on that and say critical queer theory. Mm, And, 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 And listen, I really believe that just like how the true black story is typically omitted from history, that the queer story is equally omitted. And I would love to hear your take on that. I mean, it, it, dude, <laughs> listen, hey, Jay, uh, real quick, I want to be your friend in real life. Just want to say that, but but, but, please go ahead.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm really glad that you said that because where queer theorists started, say back in the early 1990s, which I can't, I'm not even, I'm in denial about how long ago that was, but um, in the early 1990s, the, where they they focused their attention concerning these categories, so I'll just say, modern Western society is obsessed with neat and tidy categories for human beings, for ideas, for systems, etc. Human beings maybe have always had that tendency, but the modern West has has put that on steroids. And where queer theorists focused their initial attention in that regard is on the binary gender system. So the way that male and female are absolutely categorized as completely distinctive and distinct kinds of being human in the world. But what I I wanna get to the race part of that because eventually where this approach to the binary gender system leads is recognizing just how fallacious all of our categories for human beings are. And, and the, the invention of race, maybe three or four hundred years ago, Uh, as another example of categorical classification schemes, rooting it in biology, there is no such thing as race, biologically speaking. So where the heck, where the heck did it come from? I'm going to use bad language. Oh no, where the fuck did it come from? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, right, for heck, anyway. (laughs) So... One of the things that blew my mind in that regard as queer theorists were doing their work early in the 90s and into the early 2000s is to recognize how many of our assumptions about gender are recent, like in the last 200 years. So a wonderful um, book called Making Sex by Thomas LaCour, who's a professor at uh, University of California Berkeley, points out in this, I mean, I, I... I sat stunned in my little apartment in graduate school for the longest time reading this book because he pointed out and detailed how basically the idea of an absolute distinction between male and female rooted in biology is an 18th century invention. Yeah. So if you go back and um, talk about th- things that are hidden in history, <laughs> the, the, Way, what we would call sort of gender fluid, gender queer, transgender, those who don't fit these categories, the history is full of characters like that. Yes. Um, and Christian history is full of characters like that. And, and, but wait, it's not just full of characters
2: like that, but c- the contributors to the historical narrative. Yes,
4: absolutely right. Absolutely right. So the reason I said what I was hoping would be a provocative statement, <laughs> that if you're going to follow the historical Jesus, you're going to have to be queer, is because of that regulatory regime business that I mentioned a little bit ago. And I'm going to be treading on Katie's territory here, and I apologize about that. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Katie. But one of the things that I found so helpful about New Testament studies uh, and biblical studies is the role of thinking about empire and uh, post-coloniality and so on in reading biblical texts. And and reading those texts through the lens of anti-imperial postures well, empire didn't die when the Roman Empire died. Empire continues in all sorts of guises. And what what that helps me to do is to read Jesus in those hysterical historical I know. Those hysterically historical <laughs> narratives as this anti-empirical figure who is Critiquing and dismantling the categories that are built for the sake of oppression and control. So yes. race falls into that and gender and class and sexuality. Yes. And so I, I would not have stumbled into that the way that I have over the years if I hadn't been motivated by a homophobic religious institution to try to pursue something else in the history of Christian ideas. And that led me into this whole notion that breaking free of these categorical classification schemes is part of the liberatory posture that Jesus invites all of us into.
0: Jay, I wish I had corrective words because just because that would be kind of fun to be able to correct you, but I have none at all. So, <laughs> so total, um, total solidarity there. Um, one one thing that I'm kind of curious about, you, you said earlier that when you were kind of in the middle of these religious and spiritual transitions and as you were starting to, Uh, investigate what it is to do theology queerly, um, that you found places where you didn't have to check your body at the door. So I'd, I'd love to explore more, like how does, I know this is important in your work, but how does the body and like queer bodies, how does that impact the way we think about God?
4: <laughs> I love that question, and how much time have you got? So forty five minutes. <laughs>
0: and everyone, everyone can read Jay's
4: books on this too, right? <laughs> uh,
0: I hope so. Yes,
4: yes. So one of the things that this journey has been so helpful to me in regarding is exactly that question, Katie, and the realization. That not just for gay and lesbian people, but for basically everybody, the Christian Church has not known what to think or what to say about sex, like ever. So, uh, and that has profound implications for how we think about our bodies. Sex has been the proverbial elephant in the Christ- in the church's living room for the longest time, and part of a big part of what this work led me to to investigate is what can we say. I mean, we say Christians are supposedly incarnational religious types, right? We're talking about the incarnation of the divine word in Jesus, so somehow the physical body ought to matter. Why are we finding it so difficult to talk about bodily stuff? And especially, I would say, about pleasure. Why is there so little about pleasure in Christian traditions um, and it, the role that it might play? So part of what I have appreciated in doing this work is in in fact finding sources and ways of reading the traditions that foreground bodies and the material world as vehicles for encountering the presence of god the rather than you know constantly we we're so ingrained to think of up and down in Christian spiritual practice. Heaven is up and we're down here on earth. And what I think that has led so many of us to do, as true for me for the longest time, is to not look around me for God and in me for God. So in my body, in the bodies of others, in um, physical intimacy, and in fact, I did write an entire book about this called Divine Communion, just turns out, And in that book, I tried to argue that this desire that we all have for physical intimacy and pleasure originates with God. It's not incidental to who we are. It's essential to who we are, even though queer theorists don't like the word essential. Whatever. It's not essentialist. Not essentialist, right. But it's absolutely vital, maybe using that word, in terms of understanding who we are as creations of God to embrace our desire for intimacy and communion with another, because that's what God desires. So that was a rambly response, Katie, but I think it's absolutely physical reality and our bodily life is absolutely vital to understanding Christian faith in a way that that modern Western Christians have often overlooked.
2: I don't think that that was rambling at all, Jay. And what you said, I think, could be key to liberating the entire Christian experience. Let me explain. Because if we can accept that some bodily gratification, that some bodily satisfaction, that this is acceptable in the context of queer sexuality right that that if it, you know like what jesus said that what you do to the least of them right that if we can if if we can crack that code then that releases the pleasure code for all of humanity and that's what that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking that 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 basically that what you're saying about queer theology actually holds the key to the entirety of human sexual pleasure
4: i I, I would say that, yes, quite kind of audaciously. So that's why I'm speaking softly now because it makes me a little embarrassed. But yes, I think that's no, true. Say it loud. I think, I, I think it's true. I think it's true. <laughs> and look, look, here's...
2: Let me help you get in touch with your inner James Brown. Say it loud. <laughs> I'm queer and I'm proud. <laughs>
4: Part of where this led me to is the importance of thinking carefully about theological anthropology in Christian faith. What I mean by that, that's the, the shorthand way of saying I believe that the, what is so crucial in Christian faith and Christian theology is the question, what does it mean to be human in relation to God and in relation to others? That's theological anthropology. And what most theologians do is go back to Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3 for responses to that question. And I'm absolutely convinced that how you, we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 will make all the difference in the world in how we read the meaning of Christian faith. Here's in, here's in part what I mean about that. Genesis 3, there's a little wrinkle in the story that happens in Genesis 3 because of the serpent, right? And what most people, how most people read that moment in Genesis 3 is that the first humans make a mistake for which they are guilty and they need forgiveness. That is one way to read that story. I am convinced, however, that a much more powerful, because it's been overlooked, way to read that story is not about guilt, but about shame, about shame, shame of our bodily realities, shame of being human, shame of being in relationship with each other. And if you read, and I'll, I mean, I could go on at great length. There's a there's a whole chapter in my book, Divine Communion, about this. But I think it's so important because shame, the dynamics of shame, and Brene Brown. I wish she she should be sainted. She yes, is, I agree and an amazing person, look at her YouTube videos and read her books, but shame takes the, takes two forms. One, it sends us into an interior spiral of isolation and separation from others, or it takes a form of projecting that shame outward in aggression or violence toward others. And I'm absolutely convinced that at the root of so much of human distress today, whether it is homophobia, racism, misogyny, ecological destruction, all of it is at its root a profound projection of shame outwardly or destructively inwardly, and that we need healing for that. I think everybody needs healing for that. Yeah. Amen to that. Um,
3: So you've used the word uh, queer theory, queer theology a few times. There's another word you use often in your books, in your site is peculiar. Is that a (laughs) synonym you're using for queer or is there a difference? And maybe can you flesh that out a bit?
4: The word queer, as I think almost everybody realizes, was used as a derogatory term in the 19th, starting the 19th century, um, as a way to well, shame people who did not conform to certain gender standards or sexual behavior. So queer was a, an epithet that was used to shame people. And it's been reclaimed, obviously, by queer theorists as something uh, different. But it retains that highly charged negativity. And there are quite, there's, there are quite a few LGBT people who don't like it at all. And I understand that. I totally do. And so, yes, in part, I, I was trying to find ways of evoking queerness without using the word queer and peculiar was one of those ways. But I also like that in the King James version, of the Bible, our favorite version, right? Oh, uh, <laughs> um, yes, huge friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> that there is, that in that translation of the first letter of Peter is this verse, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into marvelous light. I love that because it's this notion that in the midst of empire, in the midst of categorical classification schemes, in the midst of oppression, God calls out a people that is strange, peculiar, and queer in order to bear witness to a different way of living. So that's why, uh, and honestly... I had some, at the time that I was teaching early on at the Graduate Theological Union, there were three Roman Catholic schools as part of that union. And I had some Roman Catholic students who wanted to take my classes, but they wouldn't be able to take it if the word queer was in the title. Wow. wow. So I found other ways of talking about it.
0: Was it, was <laughs> it the Dominicans? We can, totally, we can totally delete this if we need to. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh wow so you know this has been so phenomenal i'm sitting here just like in awe really and jay after this after we finish this recording i, I would love to talk to you further about a lot of this stuff um, but one of the i want to go back and pull the thread of something that you said right there at the beginning when you were defining queer theology and i tried to write it down and i if you want to repeat it, you can. I don't, I don't know if I want to ask you to repeat it again, but I, I tried to get all of it as I could. But what I, the thing that I loved about it, I mean, this is what, this is what I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about, because I think you're so dead on. This is exactly right. This idea of this relentless interrogation of our assumptions about God and ourselves and the world, recognizing, as you said, that all of our categories about God or about human, humanity, human beings, whether that's race or gender, et cetera, that all of them are inaccurate and false and uh you know made up these are constructs of the mind including the the part about god and it's i'm excited by this because i'm writing a book on this exact topic right now and so when you said that i was like oh gosh yes this is exactly right i totally believe this and i love the idea that where this leads us this where this queer theology and this approach leads us is deeper into a mystery of god it's not We've got it all figured out. We've got all the boxes checked. We we understand it's all defined and figured out. And I so I love that idea of like how this moves us away from certainty, how it moves us into being more comfortable with not embracing all those categories that we think are real and true, and being comfortable with sort of the fluidity of that. And can you just talk a little bit more about that and how do you achieve that? Because I know for a lot of people... That's really, really hard. Even just to imagine it is difficult for a lot of people. It's like, well, how can you just sort of continually float in this uncertainty of not knowing something, right? We, we're human beings. We are, we crave answers, right? We want to just, you know, give me the damn answer. Tell me what it's all about. But yet I I totally agree with you. So like, how do we kind of sort of live in that tension um, between curiosity and having the answer like seeking the answer without always needing to have the answer
4: so i this is a great great wonderful line of questioning because uh, i do think it's absolutely important and vital because well and in in christian traditions a great location for all of this would be the mystics yes right so the the ones who are most often ignored by systematic theologians and institutional hierarchs, you know, like the institutional church will saint them, yeah. but they won't actually pay attention to what they say. <laughs> so um, the mystics, you know, like Meister Eckhart is a great example. His, his wonderful um, exclamation, I pray God to rid me of God. What kind of prayer is that except by, uh, from the mystical insight that my concept of God is keeping me from God? Yes, yes. And so the real the, God, the actual yes, right, being, right, yes, exactly. And so uh, Peter Rollins, some of you may have heard of yeah. his work in emergent Christianity in the UK and and so on. Um, he has a very helpful uh, distinction between material idolatry and conceptual idolatry. So we can have little idols, you know, like a little object sitting on our shelf or something as an idol. But ideas and concepts and doctrines can also be idols, and they can get in our way of actually encountering the presence of the living God. So that would be one thing I'd say is the mystics, right, is let them speak to us in some fresh ways. I think they're some of the queerest characters in Christian history. And, you know, the In our own human relationships with our close, close friends or our spouses, if we find that we no longer have any questions about these people, there's something really wrong in our relationship. We're not paying attention or something has died, frankly. Yeah, I love that. And so that's true for God, too. If we think we have all the answers and we have no questions. Yes, Something is seriously wrong with how we're encountering this deep mystery in the universe. The only, One other thing I'll say about that is um, there are several places, uh, several stories, many, actually not just several, many um, biblical stories and biblical texts that speak powerfully to me about this. So, for example the transfiguration story, when uh, Jesus is on the mountain, Peter, James, and John are there, and he's transfigured. And of course, what does Peter say? Peter says, oh, this is really great. Let's build little booths so we can keep you and Moses and Elijah in a little booth. If ever there was a moment in the biblical text that is talking about categorical classification schemes, that's it you're yes. putting jesus and the <laughs> prophets in little boxes yes and so jesus is saying wow you don't get this <laughs> right? so there's so yeah. there's that and then um there's one of my favorite stories from uh, uh, well i my favorite gospel it changes every week so i'm not going to say it. but i do love the emmaus road story in luke Yeah. Because there um, Jesus shows up as a stranger. They don't even know him. Right. And that's true about many of the resurrection stories. Jesus is unrecognizable. Talk about not being categorized Hmm. or classified. You can't even recognize him. And then as soon as they get to the inn in Emmaus and they finally do recognize him at the very moment when he's breaking bread, he disappears. So you can't classify and categorize your way out of the dilemma of being human. You can only Mm. let yourself fall into God. Mm. That's all we can do. And trust that we're going to land in grace. I've actually never said it that way before, but I think that's exactly the case.
0: We are exactly here to provide you the title for your next book, Jay. So that's it. Falling <laughs> <laughs> into grace. That's well, all just things. beautiful. Two well,
4: quick quotes. Two oh, quick yeah. quotes. I'm sorry, Katie. Two quick quotes no, no, from like, you know, champions of of our Christian traditions, theologians, and so on. Augustine, of all people, right? Um, the guy that so many. Anyway, oh, fan favorite uh, around here for no, sure. He's not
3: like, right. he's, I'm not a good fan No, But oh okay, great.
4: He's the one that cut his nuts off, right? No, yes. that's no origin. 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 Okay, okay. okay my bad. Uh, he's, uh, origin's awesome. uh, but Augustine uh has this great quote. He has got a, quite a few, but I love this quote. If you understand something, it's not God. Yes. So I would say the Christian gospel invites a profound humility on our part in the face of the infinite mystery of the living God. And if we think we understand God, then it's not God that we're dealing with. Yes. And then Gregory of Nyssa is another favorite quote of mine. Concepts create idols, only wonder understands anything. Mm. So all of this, and notice, I'm not even talking about like gay sex right now, but all of this stuff. Yeah, what's up with that? (laughs) I know, that would have been much more exciting for your listeners, I'm sure. But part of what I really love about this is I fell into these thinkers and this way of thinking and this way of reading the Bible and the traditions precisely because of this decades-long wrestling match that Christianity has had with gay and lesbian people. And it's quite possible that Many scholars who have used queer theory and other forms of dealing with these questions would not have come to some of these great realizations if it hadn't been for that debate that has been so protracted. I'm not saying yay for the debate because it's hurt an awful lot of people. But look what God brings out of something that's pretty terrible is uh, new insights and new ways of thinking that are life-giving.
0: So I'm so glad you brought up... um the mystics and the way they talk about God. And so I'll talk about gay sex for a minute. Um, no problem. Yay. And so, um, <laughs> or, or divine, kind of divine sex. But I remember as an undergraduate, um, and it wasn't a mystic, but we were reading a poem, I think by, uh, I think it was by John Dunn, Batter My Heart, Three Person God. And yeah. I wrote my little analysis of it. And my professor, he was like, you're really shying away from the fact that, um, Dunn is using explicitly sexual imagery to talk about divine union. And then as of course, I was wildly uncomfortable with that at the age of 18, growing up in my uh, Protestant household. Uh, And then, uh, but when I started reading the mystics, I was like, well, good God, they do the same thing. They talk about what it is to be in union with God as a sexual, as they analogous or more than analogous. I mean, they talk about it as this physical experience that they have. Um, so I'm, I'm so happy you brought that up because it's such this lost tradition among um, our contemporary Christian culture and especially in an evangelical culture.
4: Oh, so um, this blew my mind. Uh, there's a wonderful book by David Carr called The Erotic Word. He's a biblical scholar um, and uh, it's published by Oxford. And it's that uh, was uh, one among several life-changing books for me. But What he points out in that book is the Song of Songs, which is this little collection, it is erotic love poetry, right, in the Hebrew Bible, this tiny little book most Christians couldn't find if their lives depended on it, though they sort of know that it's there. It's this little collection of erotic love poems, and that book has played a huge role in the development of Christian traditions prior to the modern period. It is the most frequently copied book in medieval Europe. It's the most frequently commented book among monastic communities. It is the most frequently preached on book in medieval Christianity. And for the vast majority of centuries in Christian traditions, it's the one book except for the Gospel of John that is most often read in the Bible. And I'm like the Song of Songs. Are you what is that? It was it's, like the Fifty Shades of Grey of the
1: time. Yes. Very yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> good, Keith. Very good. Uh, and what David Carr argues, among other scholars as well, is what's going on here. And Douglas Christie, by the way, whom I really love as a scholar of Christian monasticism, he's done a lot on eroticism and monastic traditions. And the the. The insight here is that the Song of Songs was so important in Christian traditions because Christians understood back then that only erotic language would suffice to talk about God's desire for us. For us! (laughs) So that, you know, I grew up in the kind of evangelical Christianity that I grew up in. I always thought I had to get God's attention somehow, or that I hadn't behaved well enough to get God's attention, or I had to be really super good. That's completely the reverse of the message. God is the one who's trying to get our attention, because God is batshit crazy about us. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. bad shit crazy
1: you, you can almost say I can't even believe I'm going to say this you can almost say God is already aroused
4: his. God's I think
1: desire for us is already aroused right
4: I am very happy with that language in that Listen, regard
2: God, God has the best porn collection <laughs> of anyone in the universe he sees everything he sees it all I mean, yes, poor has nothing on God. Okay? <laughs> so I want to throw something out here. One of my idols is an Episcopalian bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong. Ah, yes. and And, and let me tell you this, because as a young apostolic evangelical pastor, I saw Bishop Spong as the heretic of heretics, of modern day heretics. But when I went through my deconstruction and began to uh, look at um, as sexuality as more of a construct of being than of doing, I really began to get into what, he was writing and so he wrote this book and let me see if i can if I can pull this up living in sin
4: living in sin yes I knew we were going to say that one yep
2: yep and 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 so i i heard about that book as a young pastor and called it a a blasphemous heresy but then toward the end of my deconstruction I actually took the time to read it and, and and it was no listen listen Condemn it first and then read it, yeah. Well, I mean that's the Christian way, right? I was
1: gonna say that's the Christian pattern. I condemn it. And then later on I watched that movie and I said, you know, maybe it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad after all.
2: So so that that was and and so I wanted to talk to you about about Spong and um and his influence on the episcopalian uh, hierarchy, if you will.
4: He's an un—I uh, was about to say—he's an unsung hero. Uh, in part, he was so bef- he was so ahead of his time that when certain policy changes happened in the Episcopal Church, people had forgotten that Spong actually paved the way for those to happen, and mm-hmm. that he he paid a price for a lot of that. You know, theologically, he and I would differ about certain things. But what I really love about Spong is if you're going to err, err on the side of love.
1: Because at the
4: end of the day, you know, we stand before God, our judge. You know, what are you going to say? I'm sorry I loved too much. (laughs) <laughs> it's not you know, that's not gonna happen. And so if you the Spong was always on that side of things. And he got he didn't use this language as much, but this is what I think he meant, including in Living in Sin and some of his other books. He he really got at a visceral level level, I think, the pernicious corrupting power of shame. I think he really got it. Uh, he got it around, um, the l- lingering is even too mild a to word, misogyny in the institutional church and racism and homophobia. And that it was at root a, that at root, all of those are about body hating postures. About, about hating that which you can't accept about yourself. And you project it on women, on people of color, on gay and lesbian people. And he got it.
0: Jay, this has been such a treat. Uh, We could go on and on and on. And I, uh, I want to say just, it's a pleasure to have you just because we've known each other for so long, but also full circle, I uh, worked in Glen Ellen right next to Wheaton Ah. for like Ah. two years in the early 2000s. So I'm very familiar with the Wheaton everything (laughs) that's there. And And you know,
4: that's really cool. And I'll just say too, what we didn't have a chance to talk about, many, many things, of course, but what, I've been working on the last few years is how this extends into ecological theology and environmentalism and the distinctions between species and how those need to dissolve if we're going to survive on this planet. So that's maybe for topic for another episode. Yeah, I mean, you I think you just invited yourself on to a follow-up <laughs> episode, yeah.
0: with, that's that's I, I think. which yeah. I'd be cool with. I'm open to that. We rarely have a double heretic, but you could be it. You could be one of the few. It's like the five timers club in SNL. We need one of those. (laughs)
2: This has been so much fun. Listen, I, I have I on on my own podcast. Forward, I absolutely avoid anything theological. But dude, I would have you on as a guest to talk about this whole eco, this whole ecological thing because exactly. you, you, you just you my, my ears stood up like my cats <laughs>
0: <I'm just kidding. laughs> well, okay, I know great. I know people are going to want to find uh, you and your work. What's the best way for people to be in touch with you and to find you?
4: That's a really great question. Um, I have a blog that you can find me on, which is Peculiar faith. and I've been trying to post there a little bit more regularly these days and you can also look me up although we're building a new website I'm so embarrassed to actually send you to our current one but All Saints Episcopal Church in Saugatuck, Michigan um, if you try to look us up there you can find a website there but PeculiarFaith.com is probably the best way to find me and I'm very happy to be in conversation and a communication with people about these topics very happy
1: and then Jay can I ask you real quick too um, are there any based on all the different things we covered in this interview are there books that you've written that if people want to read more about what you you know how you've unpacked some of these concepts that you would uh, recommend (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Could you give us the titles, please? <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I, I can see you on video, but our audience, like, they, they don't know what you just did.
4: Yes, two books I, that relate exactly to what we were talking about uh, in this episode. Uh, the first is called Divine Communion, and the subtitle is A Eucharistic Theology of Sexual Intimacy. So it's basically reading... classical Christian doctrines of of theology through the lens of physical intimacy, and especially at the table of Holy Communion, which I consider to be a table of physical intimacy. So um, Divine Communion is the name of that book. And then the book about basically a reading of all the doctrines of Christian faith through the lens of queer theory. That book is called Peculiar Faith, and the subtitle is Queer Theology for Christian Witness. And that last phrase is really important to me for Christian Witness. I'm not interested in doing theology that just sits on a shelf. I'm interested in how theological ideas can motivate, inspire, and activate Christian communities to change the world. So um, that's what that book is about.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for being here.
4: Yeah, thank you. Thanks, y'all. You it's really fun. Very fun. Fun to meet all of you, too. Thank you so much. This was yeah. great. You asked great questions.
1: Well, you are amazing. So thank you so much, Jay. This was really incredible. Thank you.
3: I wasn't lying, was I? Oh, hell no. That was a fantastic conversation. Again, shout out to Katie for hooking that one up because... <laughs> fucking
1: a! Jay is awesome. You were
3: great. God, you're blowing my eardrums <laughs> out, bro. Um we're at, we're, this is how excited we are on this, on this decolonizing so series. Good. And I, ho- I hope if you're listening, you're just as excited. And I hope if you're just as excited, you head on over to heretichappyhour.com. You binge listen to all the episodes that you might have missed. If you haven't missed any, well, God bless you. Check out the swag we got. Check out the bookstore. Check out all the other things that I can't even remember we have on heretichappyhour.com. Go there today. Spend 10 minutes there and have a ball. Pillows. We have pillows. Ooh, yes, we have pillows.
0: Pillows seem perfect after listening to the queer theology episode where we're talking about sacred sexuality. So everyone needs a couple of pillows. Throw on your bed, throw on your couch, wherever. Take a picture of your pillow and then come on over to our free Facebook group, Heresy After Hours. We have, like last count, over two, well over 2,000 heretics. Just like you, asking questions, singing songs, having debates, having fun, um, and just having a great time. So that's a great community. It's a free resource, free support for you to continue your journey.
2: And if you want to connect with your favorite heretics, go on over to Heretic Happy Hour and get one of these fucking pillows. And imagine that you're cozying up to Jay because he's fucking he is, awesome. He is fucking awesome. <laughs> and he is fucking awesome. And then give us a five-star rating on iTunes because, listen, once you cozy up to that pillow and imagine you're cozying up to Jay, who is fucking awesome, and you get, you, you get this pillow, you give this five-star rating, listen, you are going to elevate the Heritage Happy Hour podcast to another level because of you. damn it.
1: And you know, unless I blacked out for a second, I think I missed my my cue there to mention that if you love the Heritage Happy Hour (laughs) (laughs) podcast, um, and hey, if anything's possible, uh, you should head over to the Patreon page, (laughs) patreon.com slash Heritage Happy Hour, and you will unlock over 100 uh, bonus episodes and content and videos and just all kinds of awesome, crazy, fun stuff over there. And if you already support us, believe me, we love you so much. And and you know what? I don't want this to become a bit, but apparently now it's going to become a bit. So I, I got to do it. It's I got to do it now. It's a bit. If you support us it's already. Here it goes. It. I love you. I do love you. It. I love you. Lick your lips first. Lick them. Lick them. Lick them first. Lick them first. I give you a big kiss. No tongue. No tongue. But, I, but there was, there was someone,
3: someone mute this man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that was Derek. Lick the tongue there. I, I wasn't doing that. Just,
0: no, just was keen. Friend, don't, don't, don't blame it for me. You. Love you guys. <laughs>